Let's bow our heads in prayer. It is a joy, Heavenly Father, to, to be able to come into your house with so many believers gathering together to praise your most holy name. We do not understand how the Spirit moves convincing men of sin, creating faith in us. But we do know that you are the Lord of our lives. You have prepared a place for us, for believers in heaven, and we look forward to that. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the mercy that you have given to us, that we do not need to endure hell, and also for the grace that you have given us, that we can sit at the king's table for all eternity, ruling and reigning with Christ in the new heaven and the new earth. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this. We pray in this evening hour, the many that are here that do not know you, that cannot claim you as Lord and Savior, that do not want to claim you as Lord and Savior, we pray that you would call and draw them, that your word would prick them, that your Holy Spirit would convict them of their sin, and they would see a need of a Savior through your spoken word. We pray this all in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. For our scripture reading, we'll do a few scripture verses, a few scripture passages, but the main text will be taken from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16. Ezekiel, chapter 16. Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations, and say, Thus saith the Lord God unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan, and thy father was an Amorite, and thy mother a Hittite. And as for thy nativity, in the day thou wast born, thy navel was not cut, neither wast thou washed in water to supple thee. Thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. None I pitied thee to do any of these unto thee, to have compassion upon thee, but thou wast cast into the open field to the loathing of thy person in the day that thou wast born. And when I passed by thee, I saw thee polluted in thine own blood. I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. Yea, I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. I have caused thee to multiply as the bud of the field, and thou hast increased and waxen great and thou art come to excellent ornaments. Thy breasts are fashioned, and thine hair is grown, where as thou wast naked and bare. Now when I passed by thee, I looked upon thee. Behold, thy time was the time of love, and I spread my skirt over thee, and covered thy nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee, and entered into a covenant with thee, saith the Lord God, and thou becamest mine. Then I washed thee with water, yea, I thoroughly washed away thy blood from thee, and I anointed thee with oil, I clothed thee also with broidered work, and shod thee with badger skin, and I girded thee about with fine linen, and I covered thee with silk. I decked thee also with ornaments, and I put bracelets upon thy hands, and a chain on thy neck. And I put a jewel on thy forehead, and earrings in thine ears, and a beautiful crown upon thine head. 
Thus wast thou decked with gold and silver, and thy raiment was of fine linen and silk embroidered work. Thou didst eat fine flour and honey and oil, and thou wast exceeding beautiful, and thou didst prosper into a kingdom. And thy renown went forth among the heathen for thy beauty, for it was perfect through my comeliness, which I had put upon thee, saith the Lord God. So this, the, this year's theme at Eastern Camp is commit your ways unto the Lord. And I'm reminded of the scripture in the New Testament where it says that we loved God because he first loved us. And isn't that true that we indeed do love God because he did first love us? There's nothing about us that is awesome that is great, that is spectacular. We read in the Old Testament that the writer said that God, when he chose Israel, it wasn't because Israel was strong and powerful and was able to do all these things, because indeed they weren't. They were a weak nation. They were small. But God chose them because he chose them. And the reasons for it were so that God would get the glory in the choice that he made. And we see here a very similar scene, we see here some imagery that God is wanting us to know and wanting the Israelites to know. We see a very graphic scene of a, of a baby that was basically jettisoned, thrown into a field. Thrown into a field because nobody wanted to care for her or him. And we see in verse 4 that the navel was not cut. The umbilical cord, let's say, was not cut. You weren't washed with water. You weren't salted at all. You weren't swaddled in, in clothing at all. Nobody pitied this baby. And in fact, we know in Greco-Roman times that if a father did not want a child, that was de basically a death sentence for the child. The child could be set out to die in the elements. And in here we see that the child would be set out into a, into a field, presumably to be plowed over with a plow or a disc. Pretty graphic, but that's what, the, that's what God wants us to hear. And, and what did God do in this? What is God's commitment to us? And speaking with a young brother from California about this theme, his, his thought was that he wanted to speak about the God's commitment to us in this evening hour, I would like to spend a little bit of time of what is God's commitment to us? Why is he so committed to us? And we see here, not even so much why, but just to understand how committed he is. No, I pitied, pitied this person. No, I pitied this, this baby that was there, all bloody, in the dirt, mud, nastiness all over his body. We always see little babies and we think how cute they are and cuddly and we want to touch them and like them. This was a baby that was sitting in the field, nasty, gross, disgusting. There was nothing beautiful about this child. There was nothing great about this child that, was, that caught, would catch anybody's eye. But in God's Sovereignty and God's love, his divine will, what happened? In verse 6, we saw, And when I passed by you, I saw you polluted in your own blood. I said unto you, when you were in your blood, live. 
God said to this baby, live. In his divine sovereignty, in his power, he said, live. The baby did not cry and say, save me, save me. God said, live. And we know that in Hebrew, in Hebrew, and in the Greek, if you want to emphasize something, we do in English, what do we do? We put exclamation points. Here, the author repeats the same thing twice. So there's emphasis here. But I said, unto you, I said unto you when you were in your own blood, live. Yes, I said unto you when you were in your own blood, live. And what did God do? God caused them and God causes us to multiply as the bud of the field and they increased, they grew. He put on ornaments on them and he, when he passed by them, he said it was a time of love. He, he spread his skirt over this, this woman, I pres- presumably, and he covered her, protected her. And what does God do when we turn to him? When God calls us and draws us and when we return in faith, responding in faith and we repent, what does God do? He washes us. I washed you with water, thoroughly washed away the blood from you and I anointed you with oil. The imagery here is that God washes us, makes us white as snow at the cross of Calvary. It is at the cross of Calvary that God regenerates us. When we place our faith in him, that moment, that moment that we believe, that moment we believe we go from sons and daughters, slaves of Satan, slaves of sin, to slaves of righteousness. Slaves, slaves of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he washes us and he anoints us with oil, The oil oftentimes in the Old Testament and the New denotes the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us. Ephesians 1 says, the Holy Spirit is our earnest, is our down payment, is our guarantee that when we enter into courts of glory, God has a place prepared for us, mansions and dwelling places for us. He washed us, verse 9, made us, with water, washed the blood away from us, and I clothed you with broidered work. And he put all sorts of bracelets and jewelry, decking them with all this on their foreheads, on their earrings, connotating that this is a this is part of the family, part of the of the divine family. And then in verse 14 we read, and all this went out, the world knew about these people among the heathen. Why? It was through God's beauty, God's calmness, for which I put on the verse 14, saith the Lord. Brothers and sisters, God is so committed to us. If God had never called us and drawn us, none of us would turn to him. Romans 3 is abundantly clear. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that is pure. No one Not even you, not even me, not even the most pious person on planet earth seeks after God. We do it on different levels. Not all of us is equally wicked. Not all of us runs to the greatest excesses of sin. Not all of us are decapitators. Not all of us are uh, murderers. Not all of us are killers to the greatest extent and haters to the extent and gossipers to the highest extent. But all of us, apart from, 
from the pool and draw of God. None of us would seek after him. It sounds desperate. It sounds horrible. And it is. But thanks be to God, brothers and sisters, that God has called and drawn us. God has given us the general call. When we look out through nature, we can see this moon, the stars, and the sky, that God loves us, that God wants us, that God desires us to be saved. And we can see that, and we can be thankful for that. Young people and brothers and sisters and all of us, be thankful that you were placed in a Christian home. God did that out of his own love and divine sovereignty. He placed you in a Christian home. Just statistically speaking, you have a much greater chance of being a believer, of knowing Jesus Christ, of repenting of your sins if you are born and raised in a believing Christian household. Be thankful for that. What did you do to deserve that? Nothing. Zero. God's placed you that before you were born. You did not argue that in the womb. You did not argue when you were a little zygote. You did not argue that in any time, place. God placed you there and said, I will place you in a Christian home. And many of you are here because you weren't placed in a Christian home. But God in his love, in reaching towards sinners, brought a family or brought someone into your home, into your life, that reached out to you, touched you, called you, spent time with you, read the scriptures with you, prayed for you. You may not even know that many of these things occurred. That's what God did behind the scenes. That's how much God loves you. He sees this baby in the field that is ugly, that is nasty, and all of us, my unconverted friends, you are ugly and you are nasty to God, to the world. But God still loves us, not because of our beauty, in spite of our beauty, in spite of our sin, God loves you and wants to redeem you and make you as white as snow, bring you unto him to be born again. That's the message of the gospel. And we see it in this world. It's wicked. There's sin everywhere. There's sin, even if we're honest with ourselves, when we're honest with ourselves, there's sin in our lives. There's frustration in our lives. Yet God still is committed to us. And how do we know that? Because the very next verse says this in verse 15, but thou didst trust in thine own beauty and placed the heart and played the harlot and pourest out your fornication on everyone that was passed by. This was God's chosen people. God's chosen people did this. They played the harlot. They played the harlot so much, we read in verses 32 and 33, that in general, if, if there's a prostitute, you pay the prostitute for the services that come from the prostitute. Israel was so wicked that they paid others. They paid others for their fornication. That's how wicked they were. And we read that there was a judgment that came on them. There was a judgment that came on them that God condemned them and brought them and disciplined them. That's how much God loves us. How much does God love us? He still is committed to us and he gives discipline into our lives. He brings discipline into them. In verse 41, 
We read, in, we read in the intervening scriptures between verses 16 and all the way to roughly verse 57 or so, we see how God's hand is put on Israel and it's put on the church and it's put on us to bring us back when we sin, when we fall short of the glory of God, when we wander from him. Like the songwriter says, prone to wander, prone to leave the God, not that we hate, the God that we love. When we are honest with ourselves, that is the case. Prone to wander, prone to leave the God that I love. And so he says in verse 41, they shall burn thine houses with fire and execute judgments upon thee in the sight of many women. Verse 42, verse 40, 43 says, because thou hast not remembered the days of thy youth, but hast fretted me. And the word fretted means angered. Israel angered God. And brothers and sisters, when we sin against God, we anger him. Yes, though God is our father, though God loves us, he becomes angry, frets, is angry with us when we sin. When we know better, when we act unbecoming of a believer, God is angry toward that. But he loves us so much, brothers and sisters, thanks be to God that as we read in the, the seven churches in Revelation, every one of those churches, God gives the gift of repentance. He gives the gift of repentance that you can turn from your wickedness, that you can turn from your sin. Believers, we are given the gift of repentance that we can turn from our sin. So long as your heart is beating, so long as you have a mind and you are cognizant of what's going on, God has given you the gift. Even the wicked church of Laodicea, that God wanted to spew, vomit, vomit them out of his mouth. He said, repent. The gift of repentance is given throughout Ezekiel all the way. And we read, what is required is repentance. In verse 60, even after all this is said of what Israel was doing, we see a God that is committed to his children, that loves his children. And he said this. After all what was said, and read those in your spare time this week or sometime. Nevertheless, verse 60, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish unto you an everlasting covenant. Then thou shalt remember thy ways and be ashamed. Be ashamed when thou shalt receive thy sisters, thine elder and thy younger. And I will give them unto thee for daughters, but not by my, thy covenant. And I will establish my covenant with thee that thou shalt know that I am the Lord. God is committed to us that he sends people, he sends the word of God, he sends and he gives us the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sins so that we can see that we need a savior, that we continually need God to intercede for us. Then thou mayest remember and be confounded and never open thy mouth anymore, verse 63, because of thy shame, when I am pacified toward thee for all that thou hast done, saith the Lord God. Is this the God that you know? Brothers and sisters, this is the God that there is. There is no other God. Is God a strict God? Absolutely. 
But because he is such a strict God, because his righteousness is so righteous, because he is so absolutely pure, he has given us a way. He has given us his son. And for the believers, brothers and sisters, not only are we forgiven of our sins, not only are we born again, but we have heaven awaiting us. We have beautiful message in Revelation 21 of what, what awaits us as believers. Not only does eternal life begin here now, eternal life begins now, but there is something coming, a new earth, a new heaven with resurrected bodies. And we read in Revelation 21, what does this look like? And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. God's gonna dwell with us here on this earth personally like he did in the Garden of Eden, only better, and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and shall be their God. So this earth, the greatest joys that you have had, the greatest pleasures you have had, the greatest fun that you have had pales in comparison, but God has given this as a barometer. It's a gauge. The greatest time that you have ever had. My even unbelievers, even in your sin, sin is fun. Oh, it's a whole lot of fun. That's why you do it. It's short change, it's short lived. It's not the best fun you could have, but it is fun. That's why it's tantalizing. That's why we like to do it. That's why there's a flesh that even after you're born again, the flesh and blood doesn't corrupt. It's still a little bit tantalizing. But in comparison to what awaits us as believers, it's paltry. It's playing in the sandbox when we could holiday by sea, a rough version of what C.S. Lewis said over a little bit over 100, almost 100 years ago. We could go to the ocean and enjoy the ocean, but we like to dabble, dabble in our little sandbox. But what God has prepared for us, the greatest joys, the greatest fun, the greatest uh, time that we have ever had, the greatest pleasure that we have had, God's in heaven will be much better. And God shall wipe away all tears, no more sin, no more sadness, and there shall be no more death. Every one of us has to grapple with death. We are all going to die. The fatality rate of the human race is very much near 100%, except for two that we know of that were translated, that never met death. That's a very high percentage. You're not going to escape death. We're not going to escape death. And God shall wipe away tears. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. You know, just around the corner, even if you're having a great time, even if things are going well, even if things are wonderful, what's coming around the corner? Something bad. It's not just being pessimistic. It's just being a realist. That's what this life is. It's a valley, then a hill, and then a valley. But there will be none of those in heaven on the new earth or in heaven which God will dwell with us. And there shall be no more death and no more sorrow and no crying, neither shall be any more pain for the former things, the bad things, the evil things, the things that make this life not as pleasurable will pass away. What happens when you're eating a good meal? You get full and you have to stop. Even if you go past where you should have stopped, you still have to stop. Sleeping, sleeping is enjoyable, resting is wonderful. But even then, you get untired, and then, and then you got to get up. There's no more worries about that in the kingdom of heaven. Work, 
People say they enjoy their work, and I believe it. I believe a lot of people enjoy their work. Most of us would rather do something else than the work that we're doing. But in the new heaven and in the new earth, work will be enjoyable, 100% enjoyable. Not something that we have to worry about getting up at four o'clock in the morning. Enjoyable. That's the new heaven and the earth, and that's what awaits us. This is what heaven is. Being in the presence of Almighty God, Jesus Christ, for all eternity. To know him, eternal life, John chapter 17. What is it to have eternal life? Is to know Jesus Christ, to know God. And we will know him as he wants to be known, as he needs to be known. No more sin, no more death. He has purchased us with a price. We read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 20, we read, For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. God has purchased us, brothers and sisters. We need to start acting like we are slaves of God rather than servants of God. In the Greek, when we read of the word servants, the word oftentimes that comes up, it's over a hundred times, the word is doulos. If you look in every... Nearly every Greek lexicon, every concordance, it is best translated as slaves. In fact, we know it so much and so well that in Romans chapter 6, we say this. Oftentimes, you'll hear it at testimony night. We'll even say this. We'll say in verse verse 16, Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But thanks be to God that ye were the servants of sin. You know what we say? Are you any more a slave to sin? King James says servants. Nearly every translation says servants. Probably they didn't want to have the understanding of when this was translated in the 1500s of the servants that were there back then. They had chains and they were, it was like very uh, degrading But in Greco-Roman times, servants, slaves, they were part of the family oftentimes. There were different levels of slaves and different types of slaves, but they were slaves. And this is what Paul is saying. We We were slaves unto sin, and now we are slaves unto righteousness. But too many times, brothers and sisters, we do act like we are servants, like we are free agents for the Lord, that we can, whenever we want to, maybe today we're gonna work for the Lord, maybe tomorrow, maybe we're not. Maybe when God calls me to this, I'm tired, I can't do this. We act like we're free agents, like that little, like the little waiter that says, you know what, I'm going to serve today, but you know, tomorrow I got a better gig down the street and I'm going to leave. No, brothers and sisters, we, like we were slaves unto sin, we are slaves unto Christ. And that's going to help us in our mentality as we are as believers, that's going to help us to be much more committed to Christ and his ways when we say, I have no other option. I have nothing better to do than serve my Lord and Savior in the way that he wants me to, not the way I think is best. Brothers and sisters, do you view yourselves as a free agent? Come and go as you please, whenever whenever it works, whenever it fits my schedule, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be, this is, this is my time now and this is God's time now and church time and we delineate and we parse everything out. Is, is that how we act as God's slaves? We were slaves of sin, not just servants of sin. We were slaves unto sin. 
We were not all equally slaves as far as not equally wicked, but we were still slaves, unable to do the right, always to do the wrong. But now, brothers and sisters, through the Holy Spirit living inside of us, we are equipped to be slaves unto God. And so the challenge that I would give is to all of us, and I'll just go through some of the groups that we have here. And no, no greater importance, but the thoughts first came to me is to the pastors and elders, to the deacons, to the presbytery. We know in Scripture those are all basically under one genre, the preachers of the Word of God. Brothers and sisters, our job is to cut it straight. 2 Timothy 2.15 says rightly dividing the word of God. What that means is cut it straight. That means no matter what we have in our theology, no matter what we have in our preconceived thinking, if when we read the word of God, pastors, teachers, preachers, elders, that we are, you are to cut it straight. It might be a little uncomfortable. It might not be what I used to always think. It might mean that I might go back to what I used to think and what I thought was right. And I changed my mind. But it's humbling. But we are taught in 2 Timothy 2.15, we are to rightly divide the word of God, to cut it perfect in a straight line. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to preach the word even when it's uncomfortable? Are you willing to be challenged when brothers and sisters come up to you and are challenging you? And generally, those who do come up to us understand this. Oftentimes, it's eight hours or so in preparation for a sermon. So in general, most of us who preach the Word of God, hopefully we've put the time in and we understand, and we probably will have an immediate rebut or an immediate discussion and understand that's probably how it's going to be because in preparation, we'll probably have a good amount of time there. So understand that we're going to have a good dialogue back and forth, but we as preachers, teachers, and elders need to be willing, need to be humble enough to be willing to engage in that dialogue, knowing that iron sharpens iron and we are to sharpen each other. Are we willing to work, pastors, preachers, teachers, elders, ministers? Are we willing to work, do the work of evangelist? Are we able to repent? Are we able to turn when we need to? Dads, are you committed to loving your wives as Christ loved the church? Are you committed to loving them in the greatest capacity that even when it's not fair, even when it's not right, even when it's not your turn, even when things aren't the way they should be, are you willing to do the right thing? Because Jesus did that for the church. Jesus did that for us. In this great exchange that occurred, Jesus endured the wrath of God for us that we might be made the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. He got the short end of the stick, if that's a word, a colloquialism that I will use, if you permit me to, and you have. Dads, are you willing to lead the family, to plan your family, where you want to go, what you want to do, where you want to be in five years, ten years, a godly family doesn't just happen by chance. It doesn't just happen even by coming to church all the time. Are you willing to do that? To put the time in? That might mean a little less time at work. That might mean a little less time doing the hobbies that you have. That might be mean paying more attention to the family. 
Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to commit your family to the church, to the body of believers? Because each of us is a vital function in the body of Christ. Every single one of us. And when one of us is not there, you may not know it, I may not feel it, but you are hurting. I am hurting when you are not there. You are hurting when you are not there. When we're supposed to be there, engaged as a body of believers. Is the church the thing that you are to be doing? Is the body of Christ, the commitment to the body of Christ, your local body of believers, is that what you are committed to, brothers and sisters, dads? Is that the focus that you have in your family? Do your kids know that that on Sunday night or whenever church is, that's what the activity is? Not some arbitrary activity to be filled. Do they know that's the activity? Do they know church is a priority? Do they know Jesus is a priority? Do they know the word of God is a priority? Dads, you set the tone. Be committed unto him to this cause. Moms, are you committed to raising your children, to being keepers at home, to raising them, to loving them, while the dads are out in general in the workforce, are you willing to be that keeper, the one at home? It's a tough job. It's sometimes tireless. You don't maybe get the recognition. But if we truly know what heaven is, if we truly know what heaven is, there is a time of infinite recognition, of infinite rewards that will happen at heaven. Rewards that are given for the faithful, for the faithful moms, for the faithful dads, for the faithful wives. Be faithful unto your husbands, wives. Love them, honor them, submit unto them. But remember, dads, does not require it. It's a whole lot easier to submit, brothers and sisters, when there's a competent, leading brother in the home. Are you willing to be that stepping up brother in the home? Young men and women, believers that are believers here, are you willing to be faithful of the calling that God has called you? There are temptations everywhere, all around us, in your pocket, quickly. There are infinite temptations that you have and the world is vying for your purity for your mental purity, your spiritual purity, your sexual purity? Are you willing to be committed to Jesus Christ? Are you willing to have your relationships pure, your thoughts pure, your words pure? Are you willing to be committed that way? Are you committed to sanctification, growing in Christ, being more and more like Jesus Christ? It's wonderful that so, so many convert when they're young. But as Luella Friend said years ago, it's wonderful to start well, but how do and will you end the race? How are you running, my young believer? How are you running, mom and dad? Older brothers and sisters, we are spoken and committed in Jude to be examples. I do plan to retire someday although it's not biblical, but we are never to retire from work, kingdom work. The retirement from the job should just be a springboard into doing something for the kingdom of God. If you so choose, doing actual labor for the work of the Lord. Older brothers and sisters, are you mentoring and teaching the younger? Are you being that example? Is that the role that you have taken? 
Or is now the time to burn down the nest egg that you have, that you have accumulated? Now is the time to relax. I would argue and postulate that we will have that time and it'll be a long time and it'll be much better and it'll be beautiful and it'll be worth the wait. Be committed to your local church to being a mentor to young and to old. Now I want to talk a little bit to the commitment that God has, the commitment that God has to my unbelieving young brothers and young future brothers and sisters, but unbelieving nevertheless. On June 18th of this year, five people died aboard the Titan Submersible. They were, they each spent a paltry sum of quarter of a million dollars, $250,000 per ticket to go down there. And between the five of them, there was $2.68 billion worth of wealth. Hamish Harding, pronunciations may be slightly inaccurate. These aren't Serbian or German, so I may not get it right. Or American. Shazada Dawood, Suleiman Dawood, Paul Henry, Nargalot, and Stockton Rush. We're all going down to see the Titanic. Pretty awesome. Titanic's pretty neat. Two miles beneath the ocean's surface. And $2.68 billion couldn't protect them. In fact, this hull that was made of carbon fiber and some titanium couldn't protect them either. So what happened? They went down. Don't know how far they went down. We'll say they went down roughly where the Titanic is. Two miles, 12,000 feet or so. There's a lot of weight there. One of the best ways for me to understand that is if you just imagine yourself, look up, lay on the ground, and you imagine two miles of water laying on top of you. It's a lot of weight. On that submersible, there was probably the weight roughly of the Eiffel Tower sitting on it, on that submersible and all the, on the outside of it. 6,000 pounds of pressure. If a leak started on that, 6,000 pounds of pressure will slice through your hand. 2,000 pounds of hydraulic pressure will. So 6,000 would slice it completely off. So what happened? It imploded. It collapsed in on itself. And when that happens, you're underwater, under two miles of water, and this flood of water is coming in to collapse in on itself. The nice thing about it is these five, they didn't even know it was coming. They might have heard some cracking, but when the collapse actually occurred, it was occurring at around 1,500 miles per hour, collapsing in on itself. And when that happens, the pressure of that is like roughly a million or so or more pounds on each body. Your body completely gets compressed. But that's not all. When that collapse happens, much like when there's combustion in like a diesel engine, there's carbon, there's uh, hydrocarbons in the air, fuel, that gets compressed, that air pocket. It heats up to the temperature of the sun, and then it explodes. So brothers and sisters and friends, 
don't be shocked and don't be fooled if someone says, oh, they found the bodies of these individuals. The temperature of the sun's very hot, lots of melting. They probably are distributed to the entire sea being eaten by the fish. But while they were under there, my friends outside of Christ, there was this submersible that was keeping them safe. It was rickety. It wasn't tested like it probably should have been. And it did not keep them safe. My friend outside of Christ, my unbelieving friend, you may not care, but do you know who is keeping you from eternal damnation? God. The very God that you spurn, the very God that you do not love, the very God that you question, the very God that is not your Savior, He is keeping you from eternal damnation. Almost 300 years ago, Jonathan Edwards in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, said this, There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. So this very God that you spurn, this very God that you, that you don't have regard for, and I get it, I get it, I understand. It's this very God that is keeping you from eternal torment forever and ever, this, the mere pleasure of God. He does not have to call you four times, five times. He does not have to call you whenever you feel like being called. When he calls you, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. But God is committed to this one thing. Just like those five souls, I don't know if they were believers. It seems, based on the stuff I've read, that they were not believers in Jesus Christ. God is committed to reconstituting every one of those people in the resurrection and for the judgment. God is committed to that for you too. He's committed to that. Revelation 20 says this, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat upon it, whose face was on the earth, and heaven fled away, and there was no more place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. God is committed to opening the book. He's committed to opening all the book of works. He's committed to opening the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to what? Their works. God's going to judge every one of your works. He's going to do that to the believers too. But we're talking about the unbelievers now. Now it's your turn. He's going to judge every one of your works, your secret works, the things that nobody saw. He will judge, he will evaluate, and they're going to be found lacking. And we read in verse 13, and the sea gave up their dead which were in it. Those five souls, if they were unbelievers, this, and all of us, those the sea will give up their dead. They will have no God. They will have no trouble. No matter what position these bodies are in, bodies that have been, been dead for decades and centuries, God will have no trouble reconstituting them. The sea will give up their dead, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man according to their works. He will judge you. And the judgment is actually very simple. Do you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you? You see, that's our down payment. Ephesians 1 says that it's for the believer, that's our down payment. He has given us the moment that we believe. He's given us the Holy Spirit. So you either have the Holy Spirit or you don't. You're either born again or you're not. And so the reality of it is, brothers and sisters, my friends outside of Christ, the only thing that's keeping you from the crushing waters of God's wrath, the only thing that's keeping you from the crushing waters of God's wrath is his mere pleasure and his love 
He desires you to repent. That's why he's holding back his wrath. That's why that submersible that you're in, God's love is keeping the wrath, the infinite wrath of God away from you. The very God that you spurn, the very God that you disregard, the very God that you laugh about, maybe not openly, but you do, it's keeping you safe. God's love is keeping you safe for now. But it can come crashing in on you at any moment. And these five, they had it good. In the time that it came in there, the nanoseconds that it takes to realize, they didn't even know what was going on. They had no clue. But they awoke, understanding one thing. Either they were saved or they were unsaved. Less than a week ago, a brother wanted to be here. John Demroski wanted to be here at Eastern Camp, was looking forward to being here. And God said, no, it's not your time. Not your time to go to camp. It's time to go home. Time to call you home. At any moment, God, by his mere pleasure, can say, I've called you enough. It's time. Could be a wreck. Could be a heart attack, an aneurysm. Could be anything. And God can say, it's time. He's calling you. My friend outside of Christ, he is calling you. He is calling you to turn unto him. He is calling you to repent of your sins and to be born again. He's calling you to go into the safety, the safety of God's love and his mercy, the commitment that God has to us. That is the commitment that he wants us to be in because he is faithful to us when we are unfaithful, when we disappoint him. God is still there when we turn to him in faith. God is still faithful. What does God offer to us? 2 Corinthians 5 says this, 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What does God give us? My friend outside of Christ, Jesus Christ died upon a cross. And when you place your faith in him, when you place your faith in him and trust him for your salvation, you nail, he nails your sins to the cross. Colossians 2.14. He nails them to the cross and he gives us the righteousness that Jesus earned here on this earth while living here on this. And that righteousness is imputed to you, given to you, undeserving. You don't deserve it. You're not great. You're not wonderful. I'm not great. I'm not wonderful. None of us is great. None of us is wonderful. But he imputes that, gives that to you. And this exchange occurs. We give him our sin. He gives us his righteousness. And the wrath of God was poured out on Calvary's cross for the sins of all those who would believe in the past and those who would believe in the future were poured out on Jesus Christ. Today, while you hear his voice, harden not your heart. While you're still in that submersible, harden not your heart because you are kept out of hell, nothing but by the mere pleasure of God. Today, harden not your heart. Dear Lord and Father in heaven, Thank you so much tonight that we could hear from your word tonight. Thank you for the brother who cut it straight with your spirit's leading. Thank you for the reminder that for those of us who love you, it is only because you loved us first. And for those of us who have committed our ways to you, O oh God, that was only possible because of your commitment to us way ahead of time. A commitment that is so deep we can hardly begin to understand it, that a God who is eternal, 
all-powerful, all-righteous, could take on human flesh and die on the cross, taking each and every one of our sins, even though he didn't deserve it, pay for that penalty for us, as we heard, so that we could be your children. We thank you that uh, for those who don't believe this fact or don't believe that it applies to them personally, this sacrifice, thank you that the call has gone out to them. Pray that you would open up their eyes, open up their hearts, that they would believe this and turn their lives to you so that they can be with you in heaven also. Uh, tonight, continue to speak to their hearts in the intermission hour and that your word would be uh, fulfilled and your name would be honored and glorified. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.